Hebrews, the 13th chapter, but last week I explained to you why the 13th chapter should really begin earlier than where it really does in your Bibles, and so I'm going to begin our reading at uh, verse 18 of chapter 12 to give us some background, and it will be my intention tonight to get through uh, verse 8 of the 13th chapter. But for background, we'll begin then at the 18th verse of chapter 12. And I remind you that we now read God's own word. For you are not come unto a mouth that might be touched, and that burned with fire, and unto blackness, and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and the voice of words, which voice they that heard entreated that no more words should be spoken unto them. For they could not endure that which was enjoined. If even a beast touch the mountain, it shall be stoned. And so fearful was the appearance that Moses said, I exceedingly fear and quake. But you are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable hosts of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaks better than that of Abel. See that you refuse not him that speaks. For if they escape not when they refused him that warned them on earth, much more shall not we escape who, turned away, who turn away from him that warned from heaven, who warns from heaven. Whose voice then shook the earth, but now he is promised, saying, Yet once more will I make to tremble not the earth only, but also the heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifies the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that have been made, that those things which are not shaken may remain. Wherefore, receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us have grace whereby we may offer service well-pleasing to God with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. But love of the brethren continue. Forget not to show love unto strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, them that are ill-treated as being yourselves also in the body. Let marriage be had in honor among all, and let the bed be undefiled, for fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Be ye free from the love of money, content with such things as ye have, for himself hath said, I will in no wise fail thee, neither will I in any wise forsake thee. So that with good courage we say, The Lord is my helper, I shall not fear. What shall man do unto me? Remember them that had the rule over you, men that spake unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. That's by the reading of God's Word. I hope that as a result of our studies over the last couple of weeks, especially, but perhaps over the last uh, four studies in particular, that, um, that you have, to some degree, thought more and more on a daily basis of where you are in your Christian life, how the book of Hebrews describes your position before God you'll be uh, surprised at how much the way we conceive of ourselves and our setting affects our behavior and our attitudes, our responses, our words, our thoughts, our plans, our affections. 
the way we think of ourselves. If we pity ourselves, then we tend to become whiners, don't we? If we think that we're um, most privileged and blessed of all men, then we tend to act grateful. If we think the world has done us dirt, we tend to be resentful. So it's real important how you think of yourself in this world, and in particular how you conceive of yourself theologically. And the author of Hebrews has been exhorting us, think of yourselves as having come to the heavenly city of God. Think of yourself as standing at Mount Zion. Think of yourself as having the blood of the new covenant available to you, and having all the angels gathered about you, and the spirits of just men made perfect. Think of, your standing, think of yourself standing in that company before God and His holy hill. Now, if you do that, I dare say it's going to be hard, harder anyway, not impossible, but it's going to be very hard for you to have a bitter spirit. It's very hard for you to live a life that ignores God and the holiness that He requires of you. It's hard for you not to love in the way that God wants you to, to be obedient in the way that you should be. And so last week, you may recall, I exhorted you on the basis of the ethical uh, instructions of chapter 13 that if we're having difficulty showing love to the brothers or being hospitable to strangers or remembering those who are in prison or being ill-treated for being Christians, if we're having difficulty with uh, sexual purity, that it will do us a great deal of good if we'll think of ourselves as new covenant believers having the superior advantage of being at the very throne room of God and standing in his presence with all of the redeemed and all the ages and the, and the angels themselves standing with us. Think of yourself that way. And if you so reckon yourselves, then I believe that you'll start behaving differently. Now, just by way of review, the author says we'll do what sorts of things if we see our advantage as new covenant believers in this life. He begins the ethical exhortations at verse 25, and they run into what we are calling chapter 13, what's the first thing that we'll do? If you're standing, you see yourself standing at Mount Zion in the city of the living God, with all of the redeemed and the angels and the blood of the covenant and all these advantages there, what's the first thing the author is going to tell you to do? Someone. Revere God. What's that? Revere God. Well, that is second, and it really goes hand in hand with this, but the first thing he says, don't refuse what God is saying. If God speaks to you in that setting, how can you say, well, catch you later? How can you say, maybe? How can you say, well, I'm going to have to wear the pros and cons? No. The first thing he bids us to do is not to refuse God speaking. Does it seem possible that Christians could refuse God speaking, at least professing Christians? Well, if they thought of themselves in this way, I think it'd be very difficult to do so, but it happens all the time. I refuse God speaking all the time, and so do you. We have um, an amazing capacity to deceive ourselves, to uh, put things aside that we don't want to hear, to conveniently forget the exhortations that we've received from the pulpit, and the author of Hebrews says, don't refuse God speaking. Come clean with yourself. Listen and hang on every word of God. Last week I think I used the example, like you were listening to um, the hospital sending signals for saving someone's life. Listen in that way, not just as though it's background music to your life, cruising down the freeway. 
Don't refuse God speaking. And then, Chris, if we don't refuse God speaking, what are we going to do remembering that we're New Covenant believers? Revere God. We are going to um, have reverence for Him and offer service or worship that is pleasing to Him. And so I'm going to put down that we're going to um, offer reverent worship. The worship that God wants. In our day and age, Many Christians believe that going to church and worshiping corporately is uh, an option. Um, good for some people, but not necessary for everyone. Author of Hebrews would not, and by any means, understand that. If you don't refuse God speaking, you're going to want to stand in His presence. And notice this. Forget all these people who want to go out in nature and commune with the Lord by themselves. I mean, don't you get tired of hearing that excuse for not going to church? The author is talking about standing what? In the presence of the angels and all the redeemed. This is a corporate exercise he's talking about. And offer that reverent worship of God that is uh, befitting. Okay? So if our relationship to God is right, we're not refusing Him, we're worshiping Him, then we have to check our relationship to our fellow man too, Bob. Just back to that verse 28. In my English Bible, it says that we may serve God. Now, the whole context of the attitude yeah, well, the Greek word, uh, technically it says offer service, that is well-pleasing. And the word for service uh, does double duty in Greek. Uh, it means worship or uh, worshipful service. And um, I, I'd have to look it up, but I believe it's the same when you find in Romans 12, where um, God off, uh, calls on us, Paul calls on us to live transformed lives. Certainly when we when we serve him, there's a several sense in which that's bringing him worship. That's true. Uh, we we want to equate those terms or replace them in a certain priority or Well again it comes from the double the double um, yeah. duty that this Greek word does in Romans twelve one. We're to offer uh, our bodies living sacrifices, um, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual, and the word is service in my translation, it could equally be translated your spiritual worship. And so a lot, and many people will expound that, you know, for service respect, which is perfectly all right, but in a sense, everything a Christian does is worship before God. The way you um, earn your money, the way you do your carpentry, the way you drive your car, the way you vote, everything is worship. God. But I think the author of Hebrews is talking specifically about offering that corporate worship before God that we do as his people on the Lord's Day. He says that must be done reverently and with awe. Okay, chapter 13 then, let love of the brothers continue. So we have brotherly love. Apparently, the recipients of this letter have been kind of flagging in their... Um, and their, the intensity of their commitment and their support of one another. He says, let it continue. And that love of the brothers is going to show itself in our hospitality to strangers and our identifying with those who are ill-treated. That concludes 
Christians who have gone to prison for their faith and people who are suffering other forms of ridicule and persecution for being Christians. And the author reminds us, you too are in the body. You go through this earthly existence. You're just as prone to the same sufferings as they are. Then we began a new section at the end of our study last week on what amounts to a call to purity. So I'm going to put that down as the next uh, requirement. Actually, I should put down personal purity. He's called for corporate brotherly love and corporate worship, and now he talks about personal purity. If I told you on um, the Lord's Day, this coming Thursday evening, we're going to do a Bible study on personal purity, what kind of sin would you think we're going to talk about? Yeah, I think so. I don't think that's an indictment of us, but I do think that's our inclination. We tend to think of purity in terms of sexual terms. The author does too, doesn't he? He says, let marriage be held in honor among all, let the bed be undefiled, fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And I've already talked about that. Uh, do remember the two sides of that. Let marriage be held in honor. Don't believe those people who say marriage is somehow a, a lower moral option. It's a necessary evil to get children into this world. But really, if you lived a holy life separate from this uh, earthly existence, you wouldn't have anything to do with sex. That teaching was already available at the time of the New Testament. We find Paul referring to it and ridiculing it as the doctrine of demons. And so the author says, don't let people put marriage down. Everyone should honor the estate of marriage. And then in the estate of marriage, everyone should honor fidelity there. Uh, let the bed be undefiled. So, yes, personal purity is sexual. But the thing that um, strikes me as a teacher of ethics and as a pastor is how the author immediately goes into another form of personal purity that I don't think we as Americans, I don't think I, to be honest with you, probably most of you, don't think very much of. And he talks about uh, what I'm going to call financial impurity. We, mu we must be free from sexual impurity, but we must also be free from financial impurity. I'm always on the lookout, um, I may not always do what I'm supposed to do as a pastor, but I'm on the lookout in myself and in others for uh, saying that one kind of sin is more heinous or gross than another. I know that in the church we, we do treat sexual sins that way, don't we? Uh, I mean, you really can't deny that it, we may not stand up and say it, but the way we treat people and think of people, you know, if I, if I were to tell you... Um, so-and-so over here, and I, I won't use any names, I'll use myself either, but if I were just to take someone from the congregation and say, so-and-so over here is just having a dickens of a time with sexual lust. You know, and I'm really working with this person and counseling this person, I hope you all pray for this person. Now think of how you would respond. Hopefully there'd be some compassion and support for what you think of that person, but if I said, this person over here is really having a dickens of a time with greed, and, I, and I'm, I'm counseling this person not to be so covetous and so forth, and would you please pray for that person? Now just examine your own feelings. How you respond to the person who struggles with lust over against how you struggle with the person who, uh, how you uh, respond to the person who struggles with grief. It's true, isn't it? Uh, it might be worth a whole study sometime for us to reflect, or maybe an open forum, talk about why is it sex has come to have that kind of... Uh, Exalted, is that the word I want? That, that uh, large, uh, looming 
uh, position in our moral feelings. Uh, the author of Hebrews, however, says more about financial impurity than he does about sexual impurity here, and I think it'd be worth our study. I hope we'll do more than this tonight, but I, I'd like to spend some time just talking about what he says in verse 5. Be free from the love of money, content with such things as you have. For himself hath said, I will in no wise fail thee, neither will I in any wise forsake thee. So that with good courage we say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what shall man do unto me? Wish you live in a better house? Had another car? We should have a better car. We should have two better cars. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we may teenagers maybe a lot more cars, but uh, don't worry, I'll, I'll touch on your sin in a minute. Don't you wish you could go to nicer stores to buy your clothes? Don't you wish you had more clothes? Don't you wish you could tear down your bedroom and build larger closets to hold all those closets? <laughs> I'm into computers. I'd love to buy a couple extra ones and get all the fanciest software, you know, and all the upgrades and that sort of thing. Am I touching a nerve here? I don't know where we've been taught this. It, it probably is part of our sinful condition. We're greedy people. Contentedness doesn't come easy for us. And uh, I, I don't say this humorously. I don't say it because I think you should excuse it. I don't. Um, but I know that when I have lived in places I didn't particularly like, and that's happened a few times, and I don't mean just in houses, but I mean parts of the country that I didn't particularly like. People just, my wife shouldn't even be here to hear this. People had a tendency to say, does everyone in California talk like that? <laughs> to be content with what you have. You know? To be content in any state you find yourself, also. Because he doesn't mean there state of the union, <laughs> its personal state, but um, be free from the love of money, the author says. He doesn't just warn us about the love of money, just be free of it. Apparently it's the sort of thing that kind of like muck that gets on you, you've got to make sure you get it off, be free of that stuff. We live in a yuppie civilization right now. Um, the love of money, I don't think the love of money really decreased that much in our culture in the mid-60s to late-60s, but there was a lot of talk about not being materialistic, you know, and, and I mean, and of course, we have some kind of moral indignation or vindication or whatever it may be when we see the people who were hippies in the late-60s now being Wall Street brokers, you know, in the 80s who are the up-and-coming, you know, riches of the world and so forth. The love of money is a perennial problem. In the Bible, there is a close connection. I want to show this to you in a second. There's a close connection between sexual immorality and greed or covetousness. 
1 Corinthians 5.11 mentions those two sins together. We're going to look at these real quickly. You're going to have to go through your Bibles fast tonight. 1 Corinthians 5.11 But as I wrote unto you not to keep company, if any man that is named a brother be a fornicator or covetous, or an idolater or reviler. You notice that? Fornicator or covetous. Those two just kind of run hand to hand. Ephesians 5.3 But fornication in all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be named among you. There you have it. See? Combination of fornication and covetousness again. Colossians 3 5. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. 1 Corinthians 6 at verse 9. Or know you not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with men, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers shall inherit the kingdom of God. These are joined together in the Bible. A few moments ago I was asking you to compare your response to the Christian struggling with lust to your uh, response to the Christian who's struggling with greed. Now I'm going to go back to you and say, as a pastor, I should probably assume that the person who's having trouble with lust is also having trouble with greed, and vice versa. These two tend to go hand in hand. Personal purity stands over against an avaricious attitude. And although we tend to look at uh, avarice as financial avarice, it can be sexual avarice too. The desire to have things to please yourself. Money, sex, and in a moment I'm going to suggest, and the author of Hebrews is going to back this up, that this stems from an attitude that says, God, you're not being good enough to me. You're not taking care of me. Ever thought of sexual sin being that kind of thing? It makes sense to say about people who are always wanting more and more materialistically in this world, to say they don't really think God's taking good enough care of them. But some people think they're not being taken care of in terms of their sexual lives either. So they go out on their own to take care of that. And that's where the, bear, the marriage bed gets defiled, as the author has just said here. But these two go hand in hand. The attitude, I'm not getting everything that I should. I'm not getting everything that I want. And if God were really a good God, he'd meet my needs. I doubt there's anybody in the room tonight who would actually say that, God, you're not being good to me. Because we all know we're supposed to be grateful for what we have. And I, and I think in our better moments, we are truly grateful for what we have. But in those moments where we stray in terms of greed or lust or whatever, aren't we really saying to God, I don't trust you? I don't think you're providing for me? I don't think my life is getting everything that it should? I want you to compare Paul's commentary on the love of money over against personal contentment in life, as we find it in 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. 1 Timothy 6, verses 6 to 10. Because Paul has an extended commentary on this problem. What Paul says is, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, for neither can we carry anything out. 
but having food and covering, we shall be therewith content. But they that are minded to be rich fall into a temptation and a snare in many foolish and hurtful lusts, such as drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which some reaching after have been led astray from the faith and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Well, there's a whole series of ethical sermons here. Have you ever known a sadder individual than a rich individual? It's amazing. Really. I've seen poor people. Well, I mean, dirt, poor people who are so happy. Jesus died for their sins. You know? They don't have a lot of airs about them and sophistication. Oh, they're just so pleased that day by day they've got a Savior that lives and cares for them. And you look at their lives and you think, not taking very good care of you. you might, I mean, the world at least might draw that conclusion. And yet, I know Christians uh, and non-Christians alike who are very well off in this world miserable. Many have pierced themselves through with many sorrows because they're grasping after money. The love of money is the root of many kinds of evil. Uh, by this time, you all know that the King James translation is the love of money is the root of all evil doesn't mean that every sin is tied somehow to the love of money. It means all kinds of evil. Yes? Okay. And I, you can imagine this. I don't have to become creative for you tonight. How money leads people into what? All kinds of problems. With drugs and sex and on and on and on. Right? What Paul says is, the answer to this is to, be, um, to have godliness with contentment. With contentment. He says things that probably are not easy for modern Americans to accept. He says, not only that we're not going to take anything out of this world with us, he says, you know, if you have food and covering, you're okay. No, 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 no. I also have to know where the next month's rent's coming from. You've got to pay the health insurance premiums. All right? Paul says, hey, you got clothes on? You have food in your stomach? You're okay. You're not going to take any of that out of this world with you, by the way. So don't get too upset about what you don't have in this world. You didn't bring anything in. Not going to take anything out. And this suggests to me that probably our attitude toward material prosperity, our bad attitude toward material prosperity, and our lusting after it stems from our not recognizing eternity. Tend to think about living in this world the beginning and end. Now, I know on a theology exam you would say you believe in eternal life. But again, what are you conceiving of when you get greedy? What are you conceiving of when you're covenant something? What you're thinking is, well, this, I mean, you only go around once in life, so grab for all the gusto you can get, right? I mean, a commercial to actually push that attitude. But the Christian says, hey, the life that I'm now living is just a really, 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 really narrow vestibule to eternity going to go on and on and on. No. I have food and clothing, I'm doing fine. Because when I leave this world, I'm going to be put into a mansion. And I'm going to live in the very presence of a holy God who has taken care of me and will take care of me forever. I don't worry about this short time. Well, that's what we should do. I don't. You don't. Reminded to be rich. 
and in so doing we fall into a temptation and a snare. Many people drown themselves to the point of perdition because the love of money has taken away their contentedness in this world. So let's examine our lives. Are we content people? Are we grasping? Are we something more we want? You know by this time, I, I trust you've been taught, that uh, there's a real snare in saying, if I could only get to a certain point in my life, then I'd be satisfied. Have you ever known anybody who got to that point and then they were satisfied? Hey, you have, you have any success stories for people stand up and say, by the way, I lived up to that. I got only so far, and that was great. No, it's always I got so far, and then I realized it was another step possible. Always more, always more. Are we content with what we have? The attitude of the godly man is one of contentedness. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Do you read that as a projection? The Lord is my shepherd. The day is coming when I'll have everything I need. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. It's not meant to be taken in the future. I shall not want is a way of saying it's because the Lord's my shepherd that that'll ne it'll never come to the place where I'll be lacking what I need. Look at 2 Corinthians 6.10. Paul describing um, ministers of God and what their situation is like in life. He says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. That irony, something you can identify with, as possessing nothing, and yet owning everything. In Christ, the whole world is ours. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We won't take time to look it up, but don't you remember that? He says, you know, because uh, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God, and everything is His, everything is yours. This world is yours, he says. And yet in this world, in terms of if you go down to, uh, you know, uh, the deed office to find out who owns property, or you know, who owns cars, and those sorts of things, the world may not identify you as owning all these sorts of things, but even if we have nothing, he says, it's though we possess everything. Philippians 4, 11 and 19. Paul says, Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therein to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know also how to abound. In everything and in all things have I learned the secret, both to be filled and to be hungry. Both to, be ab both to abound and to be in want. I can do all things in him that strengthens me. Albeit, ye did well that you uh, have fellowship with my affliction. I'm going to skip down here to verse 19. And my God shall supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I've learned how to have it really good. I've learned how to have it really miserable. And I've learned in all of this, whatever state God puts me in, to be content. I know God will meet every one of my needs. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Wasn't that the teaching of Jesus himself? That we should learn to be content. Luke 12, 15. For life does not 
what? Life is not found in the abundance of riches, Jesus said. That's not the nature of life. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Why do you worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to put on? He says, Have you ever considered the lilies of the field? That's not just a great name for a movie, by the way. The lilies of the field. Jesus means that. Have you ever gone out and just had a, a quiet hour in some meadow where the flowers are just, you know, everywhere? Whether they're lilies or whatever it may be. Have you ever done that? You just said, look at this. These flowers didn't plant themselves. They don't take care of themselves. Consider the lilies of the field. They don't go and show all this concern and so forth. God takes care of them. Don't you think God will take care of you too? Now that's what Jesus taught us. Be content. Trust God. He will take care of you. But the author of Hebrews is afraid that the recipients are forgetting that. They're forgetting, for instance, as we read in chapter 10, verse 34. For you both had compassion on them that were in bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Because you forgot, didn't you? That there was a day in your Christian life when you so trusted God that you joyfully let them spoil your possessions. It didn't bother you. You trusted in the Lord. Now you've become greedy. You're letting your personal lives get impure, sexually and financially impure. And so he reminds them of God's promise that is found in many places. For himself hath said, I will in no wise fail thee, neither will I in any wise forsake thee. Do yourself a favor. Write those words down. You put them someplace in your home where you'll see them often. Where when you get up tomorrow morning before breakfast, you'll read those words. Don't forget that. God said, I'll never fail you. And I won't forsake you. I'm not so sure that we have the confidence that those words are true. I am sure that when God said that to Joshua, he meant <laughs> Joshua was this great hero of the faith, you know. Joshua led the Israelites into the promised land. Joshua had great victories for the Lord. Who am I? I'm some peon living in Orange County in 1980, whatever, you know. But God says, I'll never fail you. I'll not forsake you. I won't let you go. Write that down because it's going to help you think of your life in the right way. It's going to free you from the love of money. It's going to make you content with what you have. We do find that promise, by the way, and I guess I'll just give you the passages. You can look them up on your own. Joshua 1.5, God said that to Joshua, I'll never fail you or forsake you. We read the words in 1 Chronicles 28, verse 20. God says them to Moses in Deuteronomy 31.6. We read them as well in Genesis 28.15. We mustn't forget our Father's care, and the author of Hebrews backs up this a promise of God which is found repeatedly in the Old Testament with a specific word from the psalmist. Verse 6, So that with good courage, we say. I didn't say it with a weak, trembling voice, you know. It's kind of like, the Lord's way over, I won't fear. He says, no, with courage I say that. With good courage. I can say what the psalmist did. The psalmist said this in Psalm 118. Let's turn back to that quickly. Psalm 118, verse 6. The whole of uh, Psalm 118 
is given over to joy and confidence in God. This is one of the psalms that was um, uh, sung uh, by the congregation of Israel at the feast that were held in Israel. As the um, subtitle says, it's Thanksgiving for Jehovah's saving goodness. And in that psalm, verse 6, we read, Jehovah is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? I've had a few occasions in my life where I actually had that kind of feeling. Not often enough. I wish I could recapture it day by day. Where I could say, I don't care what men do to me. I'm God's on my side. I'm God on my side. Who cares what they say? Who cares what they do to me? Who cares what, you know, now I'm not sure that I'll be able to meet the rent this month. And so if God's on my side, what can man do to me? We can say it with good confidence. We remember, God has promised, I will not fail you or forsake you. He is my helper. There's nothing to worry about. In fact, um, We've been freed from the greatest fear of all, haven't we? In Hebrews 2.14, the author tells us that Jesus released us from the one who held us in bondage to fear, fear of death. And because Jesus died, he put to death all of those fears about death. Because he rose from the dead, and now is a living Savior. In Matthew, the um, 10th chapter, verse 28, well on words of Jesus. He says, don't fear those who um, can destroy the body. Destroy him. Uh, fear, him. fear him who can destroy body and soul now forever. You see, I don't, I'm not afraid of him. I'm not afraid of dying. Um, you hear me confess my sins often enough. Um, hopefully you won't mind or think I'm patting myself on the back. I remember so vividly the the, the day that I had a catheterization and I went into anaphylactic shock. They had put radiographic dye into my heart, trace it around. Turned out I was allergic to it, or they put it in too quickly, but whatever it is, I went into shock. They'd revived me twice. And in the, in the course of passing out the first time, I didn't remember anything for about six <coughs> hours after that, but uh, as I was going under, uh, one doctor was working very hard to get me to do something. I think he wanted me to take some aspirin or something. I recall. I remember him leaning down and trying to keep me conscious, saying, Greg, if you don't swallow this, you'll die. And so vividly, yeah, I said to myself, yeah, so? <laughs> and it's not because of drugs, by the way. <laughs> In fact, I was much more concerned, <laughs> this is just a personal autobiography, I was much more concerned about all the confusion in my head about what was going on. That bothered me that I couldn't put everything straight about what was happening and it did that he said I was going to die. Well, it'd be nice if we could cultivate that attitude throughout our lives. We don't have to be afraid of dying. And if we don't have to be afraid of dying, we don't have to be afraid of anything short of dying. We do. Remember him who said, I won't fail you. I won't forsake you. Be of good courage. What can man do now, if you cultivate that attitude of contentment in God and confidence that he'll take care of your every need, I dare say you will not fall into sexual and financial impurity. But that will be the key to sanctification in that area of your life. Now, when I say having confidence in God, there's another way the Bible speaks of that. Having confidence in God is also described as what? Faith in God. Trusting God. 
trusting God that he'll keep his promises, that he'll do what he said, that he'll meet my needs, that he'll be there when I need him. And so it turns out that obedience to the commandments of God does not really stem from kind of a moral rearmament attitude that I want to be a holy person, here's this list of do's and don'ts, I'm going to go out there and show how well I can do, and then some competition for me. But um, obedience to the commandments stems from, at base, a heart of faith. Trusting God, believing his word, and then living your life in light of that. And of course that ties right in with chapter 11. And I've run myself out of time, but we were to go on tonight. Verse 7 tells us, Remember them that have the rule over you, men that spake unto you the word of God, and considering the issue of their life, imitate their what? Their faith. Imitate their faith. That's the whole point. Chapter 11 has said that. And now he's going to give a more recent illustration. He's going to say, not only do you have to, um, or should you remember, the saints of old, the old covenant. He says, remember the people who led you to the Lord. Remember your leaders. They may be dead, so you have to remember them. This is an interesting thing. He says, I want you to remember those good people. And imitate their faith. Consider the issue of their life, the accomplishment of their life, and therefore imitate their faith. Don't be tempted to fall into a, a life of inactivity in the Lord or falling away from the Lord or even renouncing your faith. But remember those who led you to the Lord. Remember how they trusted God through all circumstances. And all these other things, you say, are going to come naturally, including personal purity. Okay, do you have any questions on tonight's lesson? Okay. Yeah. How do you respond to the to the Christian pacifist? I mean, who says, I, I don't know if it's an example of going to extremes or if it's really the same sin as some other form of disguise. You mean pacifist in the, in the technical sense of someone who won't engage in warfare? Won't engage in warfare or any kind of defense, like the Amish, for example, who believe that, you know, you can just go in there and run them out and just, like, now, are you asking that in connection with this lesson because there are people who say, look, I'm just relying on God so I don't have to defend myself? Yes. Okay. Uh, well, my response to that is relying upon God to meet your needs because we pray, give us this day our daily bread, doesn't mean we sit at home waiting for the food to be delivered to our home. That um, what God does is he shows us how we're to live our lives and take care of ourselves and he says, look, follow my word, trust me, it'll all work out. He doesn't mean sit back and expect me to just kind of put you in a limousine and feed you your food and defend you against your enemies. And so um, it, it's an improper, logical jump from God will take care of you to God will take care of you with you doing nothing about it. Now, and I'm not saying do your part, God will do his part. It's a 50-50 deal. What we're saying is God will work through us in obedience to his commandments and he'll meet our needs. Well, there's an apparent paradox in the fact that a lot of Christians been martyred and gone to war and have been uh, brutally killed. Uh, we have tragic car accidents and things like that that take people untimely. Uh, some would say that God's not taking care of them, perhaps. Um, in what sense is he taking care of them? Well, first, when people think that, and, and I think that sometimes, I think, when people think that, they really do them good to read Calvin's Institute. Really doing good. Because you see, Calvin wasn't just this, you know, hard, you know, um, steely, I step in and do something here. 
He said, we really should be thinking more about why doesn't God allow this to happen to all the sinners in this world, or, because that, that's the downside, or we're not really seeing the whole picture in terms of what God is intended to do. This, this is a Christian. Why do we think about, look at that, they get to go to heaven earlier than us. You know, there are, there are broader considerations, and what we tend to do is we narrow the focus about what we think is best for either us or others, and say, like, why didn't God do it that way? And the answer is because God's got something better in store. Okay, knowing that, what comfort is there in believing that God will take care of you, and maybe the way He's going to take care of you is that He's actually martyred? The comfort is in knowing that all things work together for good, and that the martyrdom is not tragic, therefore. The promise is not, I'm going to get you a pink Cadillac. <laughs> okay? The promise is, I'm going to take care of you. And uh, you may be surprised the form in which that's going to take. Another question? Uh, well, just to add, to your, to add to your answer there, that Paul says, my grace is sufficient for me. Uh, earlier than other Christians, whatsoever state I am, wherever God has placed me, Yeah, well, of course, Paul's a great illustration there. When he says, three times I beseech the Lord to take this Lord in the flesh from me. And what was God's answer? No. He says, but my grace is sufficient for you. And Paul says, and so I learned that when I am weak, then am I strong. Okay? And uh, I, 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 I'm only that far along a mild trip really understanding that. But I'll tell you, through some of my surgeries and other adversities, I've learned to really feel what Paul was saying. He said, sometimes we're so low and so weak, all we have is God. We say, what do you mean? All we have is God. That means we have everything, doesn't it? Yes, sir? Yeah, to me, I'm going to think like that. It really shows me that my perspective is not God's perspective. That's right. And, and that's what really bothers me. It looks like it's terrible to us to have to Yeah, our perspective isn't God's, and uh, another way of putting that is our agenda isn't God's. You know, since God isn't living by my agenda, then we think things aren't going well, it's tragic, what have you. But if I were to give up my agenda and say, God, whatever you have in mind is best, if, if I want to live according to your will, then we would find out that we can be content in any state we're in. Hey, Joe? Yeah, for comment, you give a lot of really good illustrations tonight, but this one here where it says, I will not fear what the man will do to me. Moving into management in a major corporation is amazing to me to watch middle management, upper management, how they just compromise themselves out of fear of man, both on a peer level oh, yeah. and as superiors, and the fact that they want to have a career blocked or they don't want to go against the grain of them. They're not willing to stand up and say no to an unrighteous act or an unrighteous policy because of a financial thing there. And that's a thing that Can you imagine what they're going to do to you if you don't go along with them here? You know, oh, that yeah. kind of remark. And, and, and it's, it's almost as though, well, you're a fool not to give in to that kind of... Obviously, you want to get ahead. You know, where's the Christian man who says, I'm not worried about what they're going to do. The Lord's on my side. That happens so much. And that's yeah. one of the major problems. Okay, one more question, and then I'm going to have to stop. In light of what you said about personal purity with the, the link between the sexual and the financial uh, problems, do you think that those that preach the prosperity doctrine might be more uh, adverse to falling into sexual type sins? 
I, I hesitate to answer in embarrassment because I hate to criticize other preachers quite so bluntly as that. I have my own problems. And I, you know, before God, I, I don't feel any sense of moral superiority. But I do think that history bears that out. The guys who come along tending to preach this prosperity gospel are the ones who tend to also be found with the pants down. That's a shame. But uh, there's something psychologically that connects those two. Avarice, I think. Lust. And the lust isn't always sexual or, or financial, but it, it's kind of a lust for the good things of life, sexual or financial. It, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's an underlying problem that manifests itself in two different ways, but it's the same underlying problem, really. Okay, I'd love to go on. This conversation is very helpful and good, but I'm going to uh, stop and uh, let you get on with the uh, prayer meeting. Next week, I'll try to pick up where I left off and make a little bit of progress.